The battle of wizards and warriors continues with iron swords. The evil wizard Malkil will take the shape of the earth, wind, water, and fire. Farewell! The fate of the world is in your hands! You're listening to the Piercing Wizard Podcast, and I'm your host, Ryan Willette. I'm a professional body piercer with 20 years experience. I travel around the world teaching technique and safety classes, and I'm a member of the Association of Professional Piercers. Listen in as I talk to my friends and colleagues about our industry so we can all stay sharp. Hi, welcome to the Piercing Wizard Podcast. I am not your host, Ryan Willette. My name is Lola Slider, and welcome to part two of Ryan and Mai's Ask Me Anything. Yay. Um, so last week, or, you know, whenever you listen to this, uh, we did a handful of questions, and we've got a handful more. So we'll go ahead and get into it. And again, just to reiterate, these are our personal opinions. These are not the definitive uh, answers. If you have any sort of questions after you, you hear our answers, uh, dive deep on these, you know, search, search out information, search out people that are smarter than us, not that there are many, but there are probably some out there and you can talk to them more about these issues. Do you want to do the first question? So our first question today is what's your opinion on not using sterile gloves? Why do, oh, sorry, I messed it up because the question messed it up. That's not your fault. No. Why do, is that your opinion? Why do, is that your opinion, Ryan? Well, <laughs> Well, Lola, um, so at this point, I do feel that sterile gloves are my minimum standard for uh, for initial piercing. Uh, for most of my career, I did not have that same opinion. Um, when it comes to other people, I do believe that there is a gray area. Uh, I've had this debate, if you want to call it that, in a conversation multiple times over. If anybody's interested, you can go back and listen to an episode I did with Shorty where we talk a good amount about sterile gloves. Um, but, you know, just like just like lots of my thinking on lots of different subjects has evolved over time, my thinking on sterile gloves has also evolved. I would say that I've been piercing with sterile gloves as my minimum standard, I don't know, for about six years now out of a 20-year career. Uh, and before that, I think my priority was more on preventing cross-contamination, um, but I, I do have plenty to say on sterile gloves, but what, what's your opinion on it? My opinion on sterile gloves is that they should be the final step in your progression to becoming completely aseptic as a piercer. So if you are working in an environment where there are any parts of your setup that are not sterile, then sterile gloves would be really pointless because you would then be using the sterile gloves to touch things that were non-sterile. Um, so if there are things in your setup, um, for example, say you're using lubricant that's from a, a tube or um, a container that's not individual in a sealed sterile packet, that would be the first thing to go. So if you're a piercer and you're at a point in your career where you're making these significant improvements when it comes to hygiene to create a safer workspace for yourself and for your clients. Um, for me, sterile gloves are kind of the final step in that chain um, of moving all of the kind of supplementary disposable. I mean, there are piercers that will use non-sterile gauze, for example, to like clean up after they do a piercing and that kind of thing. So like there are little ways like that that people's setups may not be fully sterile. Um, and if, you're, if the rest of your setup isn't fully sterile, um, or 
even if you're not using your sterile equipment properly, like for example, if you're touching the outside of packets and that kind of thing, that's going to completely negate any benefit of having sterile gloves. So I think sterile gloves are a good thing. I work with sterile gloves, but in my opinion, I don't think that you should be moving to using sterile gloves until you properly understand how it is they work um, and until you properly understand the importance of everything else in your setup leading up to that also being sterile. Yeah, I think that's the reason why uh, I've only been using sterile gloves as long as I have because I felt prior to that there were so many other aspects of my method that I could make slight improvements on and slight tweaks on and then basically I ran out of all of those other small tweaks and improvements and the only thing left was sterile versus non-sterile gloves so that that's when I made the switch and now I feel that I'm offering um, the, the, the safest process I can uh, and I, I feel that sterile gloves are something that I, I wouldn't ever want to go back on at this point. Yes, once you've started using them, it's amazing. I did the same thing as you, like I worked with non-sterile gloves for the first part of my career and then switched. And then I think there was maybe like one instance where it was going to look like I was going to run out and the prospect of using the non-sterile ones again, it seemed like the worst thing in the world and mm -hmm. then that's how you used to work. It's crazy. Yeah. Um, some of the... Some of the other arguments that I've heard about, you know, sterile gloves from day one are, are valid ways of thought. Uh, one question is like, well, it's just a cleaner glove. And it's like, yes, I'm, I'm not going to argue that point. Um, some people will say, well, you know, the, the needle that you're going to be pushing through the client uh, is sterile. So if you're touching any surface of that with a non-sterile glove, you're basically rendering the sterilization of that needle uh, pointless which you know it, it's it's a very valid very uh, sound way of, of thinking um, but also I I, I I really come from a school of thought about like the 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 little person the baby piercer kind of thing and I think that sometimes the the mentality of um, sterile gloves and sterile gloves only piercers is very intimidating so if you take someone who um, you know they're, if they're piercing off of a paper towel and they're they're just everything is everything is non-sterile uh i just i don't see how it's going to make their process better just switching over to sterile gloves when there are so many other things that require improvement so what i really try to focus on is let's say it's a, a one to ten thing and and when you get to ten you're doing all this stuff you're piercing off of a, a sterile work surface sterile gloves you're you've got skin prep down you've got cross-contamination down all that stuff then yeah, it's awesome. But if you're at like a one or a three or a five or something like that, and you have all these other things that you can that you can improve on, I, I think that maybe uh, understanding cross-contamination can be a little bit more beneficial than just sterile gloves with all those other potential flaws in your process. So uh, at this point, I will say that everyone who is not using sterile gloves, I would definitely try to say, move towards sterile gloves. Um, but if you have so many other things in your process that need improvement, I don't think switching to sterile gloves tomorrow is going to be like the silver bullet between safe and unsafe. What's your thought on that? Um, I would very much agree. I, I think that it's a really elitist and blinkered view to only look at studios as being perfect or garbage studios. Mm -hmm. um, I think that that is a really bad influence on the industry it also ignores 
99% of 20 years plus experience piercers existences and mm-hmm. um and it just kind of creates a bit of a false image really and um so i think it is always important to bear in mind that we want piercers to be better we want piercers to be cleaner and safer um and if someone who is not fully understanding how cross-contamination works and maybe doesn't fully understand things like two-stage skin prep or or draping um, or draping or, or anything like that just kind of convincing them they need to go out and buy sterile gloves isn't necessarily going to make them safer sterile gloves are a tool just like clamps are a tool just like an autoclave is a piece of equipment sterile gloves are a piece of equipment and you have to be able to understand them properly and how to use them properly to make them work like it's so easy to take a pair of sterile gloves and make them non-sterile instantly so i think that they are an advanced piece of equipment um, and you shouldn't be using them unless you've been properly trained in how to use them so that's what i think about them yeah they're, they're not magic uh, it's a process and i think even piercers who are using sterile gloves and using sterile gloves well um, will tell you, and I, I know that you'd probably say the same thing, is like, it just takes one little accident or flub or misuse, and then it's just like, oh, well, these are useless, and then you have to stop and you have to, to change to a new pair of sterile gloves. And if you don't understand all of those things, uh, a big thing that I like to talk about in a lot of my classes is um, creating a false sense of security. Like, you can't go into it thinking that just because you put on sterile gloves at one point during your process that everything is sterile. Like you don't want to create that false sense of security. Like you need to understand the entire process. You need to understand their application and their use, their functionality and their their proper place within your procedure. Like you're not going to be setting up or doing your skin preparation with sterile gloves. Like those are those are the last pair of gloves that you put on before you perform your piercing. So uh, if you don't understand all those things, sterile gloves, yes, are cleaner than non-sterile gloves. Just you know by by name by definition alone. Um, but again, I don't think that that is the 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 cornerstone of of piercing. I, I think that uh, cross contamination is probably the the more important aspect of it. But once you start using sterile gloves and you're using them properly, you're you're never going to want to go back from them. No, um, I also think that um, just the the packaging for your sterile gloves is also a really useful piece of equipment as well in creating a sterile field that people might not have used before you know like we're talking about non-sterile items in your setup there are still a huge amount of piercers that will work off of a dental bib a non-sterile dental bib because it's a clean disposable surface but it's not sterile Um, and then you'll get piercers that will then work off of the inside of a sterile packet on the dental bib which is much better but you know things can roll off of those things and it can be terribly unpredictable and packaging doesn't always do what you want it to do Um, so I actually think that the packaging that sterile gloves come in is an equal useful tool as well mm-hmm. in using the sterile gloves to help improve overall hygiene too. But being able to understand the utilization of it without contaminating it through that use is also, it's a whole thing. So let, let's just imagine this scenario. You're setting up on a bib, you've opened a package on top of that bib, and there's a sterilized item sitting inside of that sterilized pouch that you've just opened. You've put on sterile gloves. You go to pick up that item and something rolls and it rolls off onto the bib. If you don't understand the concept of why you can't just pick that item up and use it, sterile gloves aren't going to be a benefit to you. If you instantly know like, well, you know, it it moved and it just touched something. So now I have to start all over again. If you understand that concept, then maybe sterile gloves are going to be beneficial to you. But if you don't understand that concept yet, or if you have a, a debate 
to that argument, stairwells probably aren't going to be very beneficial to you. Do you want to do the uh, next one? It's kind of like a vague subject. So the next subject is leadership and apprenticeships. This is something we kind of touched on a little bit in the last episode when we were talking about um, how to be a better leader in your studio. Um, you let's talk thoughts? more. Well, let's talk more about like the mentoring side yeah. of leadership and apprenticeships. Like, so you, you've you've had apprentices in the past. I've had apprentices in the past. Mm -hmm. I've learned a lot through my career by training and teaching mm -hmm. other piercers, and I think that I'm a much more effective mentor and, and trainer now than I was ten years ago. Um, and I don't know, do you feel the same way? Do you feel that like that that's also a skill that you develop over a career? Yes, definitely. Um, I have a lot of fond memories of the early days of having an apprentice. Um, it was a completely new experience for me teaching somebody else. And uh, the kind of problems that we faced and encountered were always just completely unexpected. And I was having to suddenly react to subjects and problems that I'd never even thought about before. So you have to be really flexible in your ability to teach and accept the fact that the the conversation or the pace of learning might be completely different than what you had imagined it would be and adapt to that um, and it is a relationship and you do have to try and do the best for each other um, and not necessarily blame each other when things aren't going well but try and, and solve those problems together i definitely think that being um, a mentor or having an apprentice made me a, a better piercer because nothing will make you sharper than constantly having to explain why you're doing something because it really highlights every mistake that you're making when you have to say it out loud and it can't be a do as I say not as I do situation. What you're doing has to make sense and you have to relay the information across in a way that makes sense too. So um, I think that for personal growth, being a mentor is incredibly valuable, um, but it's also a huge commitment and a huge responsibility um, taking on that role in someone else's life it is important and it's definitely not a way to get any kind of cheap labor um, that's not what it is at all and I think that that's unfortunately where so many apprenticeships have have kind of gone awry I mean obviously there is a huge amount of time spent um, and personal labor from the the part of the apprentice that goes into often unpaid work but it is very much a partnership from the beginning, I think, and you, you both have to put a lot of time and work into it for it to work. So some of the some of the lessons that I've learned, because I've apprenticed three people over my career. The first person I apprenticed, I was definitely not qualified to apprentice them. It was someone that I knew, they wanted to get into it, and I was like, sure, I can I can show you how to pierce. Um, but I didn't really know how to show them everything. I didn't know how to explain why you do it this way it was very much like a do as i do not a, you know do as i say not as i do kind of a thing um and then over time you know i apprenticed the next person and i had a better idea of where i wanted them to get to and then i i, I tried to figure out okay what are the steps to get there and then with my most recent apprentice with with evan it was really like okay i'm going to draw on all the other things i've learned from all the other educators uh, and I feel like I was, I've been a little bit more effective each time, but yeah, you really have to look at it as like you're, you're training potentially the next generation of the industry, but you're also definitely training the next generation within your studio. It can't just be about like, well, I should apprentice someone because I want a day off 
or I should apprentice someone because I don't want to clean my own tools or I don't want to empty my own trash or something like that. It really has to be about like, I see something in this person, I want to give them all the tools they need to succeed. Like I, I think that one of the most toxic things that I've seen in the industry is people that get trained just enough to be able to cover a piercing shift in their original shop and they don't get any other skills to be able to potentially move somewhere else or to be able to like grow into their own leadership positions. They're kind of um, pigeonholed, held back, limited in a way by, by the information they're given. They're given just enough information to be able to make the shop some money or cover a shift, but they're not really given the, the full picture. And I think that makes them a, a very weak piercer. And not to say that as a negative about them, but a lot of times when those piercers leave a studio, they have no idea how underprepared they are to work somewhere else or to really uh, follow body piercing as a career and then when they try to get a job in another studio when they try to move somewhere else for a better opportunity they might really be hit with the reality that they are not prepared for those opportunities i think that that's why it's so important as well if you are the apprentice to try and be aware of your situation um, and have some kind of a a system of progression in place where you are moving forward and you aren't just stagnating. If you feel that you haven't learned or done anything new in several months, um, you know, it is your, it's your time and it's your life. And if your mentor isn't working as hard as you think they should or trying as hard as you think that they should with you, um, I wouldn't just stagnate there and just let that happen. You need to say, you know, we haven't done this in a while. Could we maybe do this? I could come in on these days or I have friends that can volunteer for this. I'd really like to learn this and just really try and, and not just sit back and let that happen. Obviously, there are going to be people that aren't very nice in the industry that are going to want to just keep you um, trapped in that area of being maybe like 60 to 70% of the way through an apprenticeship just to exploit you to get time off basically which is um, a really inappropriate thing for them to do but if you ever start to feel that that's what's happening then I would push against that at the earliest opportunity um, and let them know by doing that that that's not what you're there for and that you are serious about this because I think sometimes it's hugely intentional which is really really wrong but I also think sometimes it can just be something where people do get a bit lackadaisical and just fall into a comfy routine of oh they're good they're covering my shifts they don't seem you know to mind doing that and it's easy to get lazy and complacent once apprenticeships get to kind of like you know a year and a half to two years in um, and they're maybe just kind of in those final stages so I would definitely try and, and keep pushing to learn more even when you start to get deep into the apprenticeship uh, when I was when I was on the board of directors one of the hugest things um, that was done and they've gotten some credit but they don't get a tenth of the credit they do they deserve but Jeff Saunders really pushed forward um, the APP's guidelines on apprenticeships and if you haven't already read that as a body piercer or as a piercing fan with hopes of one day getting into the industry go and read it uh, pause this podcast go to safepiercing.org and read the apprenticeship guidelines on there because it's a lot more than just like this is how you train someone to pierce uh, it's a code of ethics it lays out the expectations on, on both sides and all that stuff is massively important uh, if you want to get into an apprenticeship uh, you want to get information not just about hey how do I pierce you want to have clear expectations of uh, how long would you expect this to take? Um, what are my clear-cut responsibilities? What is the end game for me? Uh, is it to, to be licensed in two years? 
in one year? Uh, what what will my compensation be? Uh, and and you know what am I responsible for? And what are you responsible for as the mentor? Don't just go into it blind and think like you know oh yeah show me a couple things about jewelry, show me a couple things about needles, and then like I'll watch you pierce, you watch me pierce. It really needs to be about more than that. There's so much information in the industry right now uh, that if your mentor isn't qualified to, to teach you, isn't qualified to be a mentor, you're going to be severely limited and, and you're, you're really not going to get a, a chance. Uh, whether it's within that studio, let's say that mentor leaves, what are you going to be left with? Are you even going to be um, safe enough, uh, skilled enough, qualified enough to be able to pierce alone in your original studio. Um, if you wanted to get out there and do guest spots, if you wanted to potentially move to another area, you might have no idea what, you, what you're in for with the actual reality of, of the body piercing world. So lay out all those things. Um, try not to let yourself be taken advantage of. I think that's less and less common these days, but it's still definitely a possibility. So you want to understand that um, hazing is never appropriate uh, and that you you should be compensated for your work. That level of compensation and exactly what that means is, is going to be very different from one studio to another, one, one region to another, um, but you are not an indentured servant through an apprenticeship. Uh, sometimes there, there can be free hours and, and certain things that you're expected to do to kind of pay your way through, but as an example in my studio, I never hire an apprentice who hasn't at least been a counter person first. So uh, if I did want to take someone on as an apprentice, I would be giving them a shot with counter staff duties, jewelry, trash, answering the phones, cleaning up, even if it's for just one month or whether it's for a year, they need to understand how the actual shop works. And then we grow into actual piercing training. And when we get to that point, I'll still tell the person, okay, your, your counter shift hours, you're still getting paid for that. Um, you're doing work in the shop, you're going to get paid for that work. Uh, but when it comes to apprenticeship hours, you want to just watch me pierce. You want to just talk about piercing. You want to ask questions. You want to do exercises and, and practice, things like that. Um, those are unpaid hours, kind of like an internship. So uh, you have these set responsibilities. These are your scheduled hours for your paid work. Any other hours you want to come in, you're free to do that at, at your, own, uh, your own schedule, your own pace, your own leisure. Uh, and then your progression is basically at your own um, dictation at that point. So it's going to be really different from one studio to another is how they actually balance compensation. But again, um, you're an apprentice, which means a professional trainee. You are not someone's slave. Anything you want to add to that? Only that, you know, as I said before, it, it is a two-way relationship and it does require patience and understanding on both sides and rapid growth um, on both sides in response to different situations. So if you're thinking about taking on an apprentice, just be aware of that. It's not just a huge you know, physical burden in the amount of work that you do in the studio every day, but it's also an emotional one as well because you're really taking a huge vested interest in this person's future. And for me, at least, not maybe for, for other people that are maybe working in more corporate structures, it can be a little bit more isolated. But for me, if I'm working with somebody, then there is a, a significant emotional interest in their well-being in their future. Um, so I think that it's a really significant relationship, the, the mentor-apprentice one, and not one that you should take on lightly. If you're just needing extra help in the studio, 
consider just hiring a counter person and training them because that's not what an apprenticeship really is. Right. I, I think some shops, they're kind of stuck in that position of maybe they feel that they can't afford counter help, but they know that they need some help. So they think like, well, I'll just take on an apprentice and then, you know, maybe I will, whether it's on purpose or not, I will limit them a little bit, or maybe I will let them go after three months or six months when I've, when I've gotten my free work out of them. Um, all those things are forms of abuse. Uh, so you need to be aware of, of your responsibilities and your duties on, on both sides of, of that equation. Mm -hmm. uh, so the next subject is body mods versus piercing differences and what to expect. I don't know if they mean as like a client getting it or someone who wants to perform it or just in general. But I mean, you have body, mod body mods. You've had work done with a scalpel versus a needle. Um, I've had those things done and I've performed that work. I, I perform scarification as a, as a professional service. I'm, I'm licensed to offer that in my state. Um, and there are huge differences. I, I would say that the biggest thing that jumps out at me is just because you are a skilled body piercer does not mean that you are qualified to offer body mods in your studio. Um, if you've never gotten the procedure done, shadowed someone performing the procedure, had explicit training in how to pre perform that procedure, uh, chances are you're going to be nowhere near qualified to offer it. So I think it's probably less and less common these days for people to offer it just because it's the cool thing to offer in your shop. But I know that that stuff still exists out there. Um, if you take body piercing seriously, you need to take body modification seriously as its own separate profession. Um, I very much think that um, body modification is um, not really as much of a profession as it is a lifestyle in the sense that, at least in, in the UK in particular, um, it's illegal. Um, in a lot of other parts of the world, it's also illegal. Um, in some parts, it's specifically legal. Like I know that you can perform scarification in your state, but there are also a lot of places that it's ambiguous, mm -hmm. um, that it could be legal or it could not be legal. So. More often than not, with body mod work, you are going outside of the law, doing it and getting it. Um, so you have to be a lot more vigilant because there are no systems in place at all to confirm what it is you're having done, the qualifications of the person doing it. Piercers don't have qualifications in terms of the work that they do, but they still have like hygiene and facility rules that they have to have in place to be licensed by their local authority to ensure hygiene and that kind of thing. So there are some regulations in place to, to control the industry a little bit in that sense. But when it comes to body modification, um, there's really none or, or nothing that is significant um, that says it's okay and that it, and that it is regulated. So if that's something that you're looking at having done, you really need to do the work um, to make sure that you're going to somebody reputable and you need to really accept and not just brush off the fact that you are putting yourself in a situation where actual harm could come to you. So I think when it comes to, to body mode work, it's just important to be aware you are crossing a different boundary. You are being very responsible for your own health and well-being when you make a selection. Um, and even then, it's not guaranteed. I've had stuff go wrong before. I know other people have as well. And I've also had stuff that was a really, really great positive experience too. Um, and those were decisions that I made on the understanding that there was a risk involved. So I, I think with body mod work, you have to acknowledge that yourself. 
Um, if you're somebody looking to have that work done, I can't really speak as a practitioner because I'm not one. I've never been one, but I have been a customer. Uh, so it's a very, it's a very, very multifaceted uh, topic. One thing to think about is just as Lola said, uh, these procedures are at best gray area um, and at worst flat out illegal in wide sections of the world. Um, in the US, it can be state to state. Some states will explicitly ban or, or outlaw things. Other states, they just their health department doesn't know that they exist, so there are no laws on the books. Um, when it comes to a situation like that, there's, there's going to be a lot of secrecy involved by the practitioner and, and by the community of people that have gotten it done and the people who are making referrals and studios who are hosting those traveling practitioners who, who offer that work. And you have to realize that because of that level of secrecy, um, a lot of the things that go wrong or could potentially go wrong with body modification procedures are also very secretive. They're also just kind of swept under the rug. Um, two examples that I can give would be uh, the, the client who unfortunately died of a, a blood infection in Australia from a practitioner who had worked on numerous amounts of clients. Um, but it was a, an underground kind of mentality of, you know, if something goes wrong, you email me. You don't ever go to the hospital. You don't talk to piercers. Like you contact me and only me if there's a problem, um, which can be really dangerous. Um, there was a, a client who received an eyeball tattoo and they had complications and they, they lost their eye. So you have to realize that uh, with the secrecy also comes a heightened risk. And just because someone has performed these procedures before does not mean that they are qualified to uh, offer those procedures and, and they may doubly be unqualified to handle any sort of uh, problems that arise from those procedures. A lot of these things can, can kind of have crossover with uh, medical requirements and, and that would really go for, uh, for troubleshooting. If someone has an actual infection, there is no magic body piercer in the world who can write a prescription for antibiotics or, or check someone into a hospital or, or do all those uh, high level medical uh, uh, services. So you, you have to realize that you are taking your safety in your own hands when it comes to uh, seeking out those practitioners or getting a referral or, or uh, showing up in those studios to get that work done. And it's difficult to say, like, just go to someone with a good reputation because even sometimes the people that have good reputations can put out uh, dangerous work. So it's, it's, it's tough to say. I, I know several people who dabbled in uh, heavier body mods and then realize like, okay, this is not something I want. I, I want to accept the liability for. So they, they stopped doing them. And I would certainly applaud those people who knew how to stay in their lane. Uh, I was definitely tempted by a lot of things in the, the BME era. You know, I, I dipped my toes in certain things and uh, realized that like, nope, I don't want to be in that pool at all. So now I limit myself to, to things that I'm doing with, with a license, you know, body piercing and, and scarification, things that I have a lot of training for, a lot of certification when it comes to those hygiene components. Uh, but with a lot of other work, you have to be very, very cautious because it's a very short list of people that are offering that work well. I, I don't, I don't want to say much more than that, but, you know, they're offering it well and they get good results. It's an incredibly short list worldwide. Anything else you want to say about that? Um. I would just agree with you and say that's what I mean when I say that, you know, it's not a profession, it's not a job. Your job cannot be, you know, body mod guy. It is a lifestyle choice. It's it's a path that you've decided to go on where you are 
so into it, you love it so much, you're so serious about it that you are prepared to risk your own freedom to offer that service. And what, you know, I don't know if, if this is a universal thing, but the majority of people that I'm aware of, and again, it's not a big list that offer that kind of work, they're not very braggadocious about it a lot of the time. They're not incredibly public about it because of the risk that's involved. So you don't actually like automatically become super cool body mod guy showing the work that you do. If anything, you get more and more private and less and less recognition. It is a personal pursuit more than anything. So I, I would just encourage anybody who's thinking about getting into body mod work to, to not basically. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I'd, let, let's, let's see if there are any red flags that you can think of for people that you wouldn't want to go to. If someone is being like super blatant about their advertising, if they're putting it all over social media, mm -hmm. that's probably a, a good uh, idea that they haven't been doing it for very long uh, and that they don't really know what they're doing. Um, if people are posting it on their studio websites as a service they offer freely to like walk-in clientele, that's not a good sign. Um, and if people are even putting it in like giant window graphics on the front of their studio, that's probably also not a very good sign. Um, one episode you can go back and listen to is The Case of Dr. Evil. Uh, and you can see someone who uh, I, I'm, I'm sure right up until the, the day they were arrested would tell you like, oh, I'm doing this very safely and I'm doing this and I'm doing that. Um, but they're in prison right now uh, because of the... They actually just got released. Really? They just got released, yeah. That's amazing. Yep. Okay. Well, welcome home, Mac. Um, but so, that's, you know, three years, I believe. Right. Yeah. So um, take it seriously. And uh, I, I guess if you want to get mod work done, seek out the clients who received that work and ask them for their referrals, but don't go to the first person you hear. You know, if you hear someone's referral the same name 20 times over, maybe that's a good indicator where you can research them a bit further. But uh, don't uh, don't get the itch for something and then just go to the first person that says yes, because I, I would say that that is a huge, huge risk. I got this next one. Uh, so the next topic is how do you see this industry developing as we go into 2021 or 22, since both of you may have different perspectives? Well, um... If you had asked me a couple of months ago before the world started to end, uh, I would probably give you a completely different answer. I would say that you're going to see a lot more studios um, that don't look like piercing studios, that look like fine jewelry stores, that look like boutiques and salons. I think that that will be the, the future of high-end, long-term viability, growth, the types of piercers who want to own homes uh, and send their kids to, to college without getting into massive student loan debt. Uh, that's very much an American perspective. Um, I think that their studios will reflect other successful business types. Um, I think that the, the tattoo shop vibe style piercing shops, um, I think will be uh, less and less common uh, over the next, uh, the next few years. But those were all the answers that I would give you before COVID. I, I know that my, my long-term financial plans, my three to five year plan has been completely torpedoed by 2020 being like the worst. So I really honestly don't know. I think that the best decision that a lot of business makers could make, uh, business owners could make, would just be to um, like dial back your, your ambition, your aspirations, and just focus on the core strength of your studio. Uh, start to build up that war chest and those savings again 
and expand very, very slowly. Don't take any big chances right now. Uh, I think it, it's too uncertain of a time to make big gambles when it comes to investments. So I would say focus on your, your core services, which means um, just make your clients happy. Make your clients happy enough that they wanna come back and that they wanna bring their friends and they wanna bring their family. I think that's probably the, the best thing that I could see for, for 2021 and 2022. I think that you're right in terms of, I think that people's experiences over the next kind of year or so are going to be so much more experience-based, you know, like how they felt coming in. Um, we've literally been through an incredibly traumatic event emotionally, not just financially, by being isolated. I know it's been different from country to country, but, um, you know, my last day at work was the 19th of March and I'm in, you know, mid-July now um, and I still haven't had a day back at work. So, um, it's going to be over four months from not piercing to piercing again. And there are a lot of customers that are in similar situations with their jobs. Um, and I think just the the notion of interacting with another person face to face and well, behind a mask, obviously, um, in a room is going to be a little bit weird, a little bit more significant, you know, than what we definitely took it for granted as being before. So I think that taking that as an opportunity to just really hone in on your, your skills providing an overall experience to your customer is going to make things a lot more joyful for them and they're really going to appreciate it more than even they may have done in the past and now having had all of those opportunities taken away from them they might actually really appreciate those things more than they ever did um, and we can appreciate more the opportunity to be able to give them those services. Um, I mean in terms of future gambles I literally opened up my own studio at Christmas time and I was open for less than three months and then the pandemic happened. So for me, it was kind of the worst possible time for something like this to happen. But, you know, there's never a good time for a global pandemic and <laughs> it did happen to everyone, you know, not just me and everyone will have their own challenges. If I can get past this period and the, the rocky first few months of being back at work, providing things continue to stabilize in the country that I'm located, um, going forward, I feel in quite a good position, which isn't something I thought I would say a few months ago, but my studio is basically a, a private piercing studio that's just focused on one-on-one -on -one client services. So lends itself really well to what the, the kind of post-COVID work environment is going to be geared towards, which in hindsight, I'm really glad was something that I did because I think it's going to be safer for me and safer for my clients. Um, I also think just in terms of all studios, that there's going to be a huge shift more towards technology. Um, you probably know more about that than me, though. Barely. Well, I mean, there's going to be more, more things like online forms and less items to handle in your studio. I've definitely had to focus a lot more on tech. And I would imagine I'll, I'll probably be evolving that, that way of thinking over the next few months. But for now, yeah, digital waiver forms, uh, online booking systems, all that stuff has been really important. Uh, another thing that I'm really noticing is that when I, when I first got to reopen, and I've been open for around a month now at this point, um, I really tried to just go right back to my, uh, my previous business flow, like the get them in, get them out. Uh, maximize how many people you can see in a day and I realized really quickly like one one weekend uh, that that is not sustainable for the, the future because 
we're all really stressed. We're all really fatigued. We're all really traumatized by basically like what we had to deal with, like personally, professionally and, and everything else. Um, so now uh, I really do have to bring it back to what was the core of my business and what was the core of my experience before I became that like high end, you know, lots of gold, uh, statums, all that stuff. Like what was the core of my business through those those 20 years where I was kind of building to what I have now? And it was really all about uh, fostering people's love for body piercing. So it might be a little bit less about high fashion and getting something for like Instagram likes and, and putting in this like really flashy piece of gold jewelry. And it might be about like making people feel something when they, when they get that body mm -hmm. piercing or feel more connected to why they chose to come into my piercing studio. Like those things I think are, are going to be the facets that I'll be focusing on. Uh, at least for the remainder of 2020. So that, that'll probably really uh, shape my 2021 and 2022. Um, I think that there'll probably be a lot more online education as well as there has been just as a, as a result of conferences all being cancelled around the world and that kind of thing, which is definitely the, the right move for them to make given the, the risks still associated with travel pretty much globally. Um, so I think a move more to online teaching um, is definitely going to kind of dominate 2021. But I think that all being well, hopefully there being a even potentially a vaccine by 2022, we can all hope. Um, I actually think that there will be uh, a significant return of in-person teaching and in-person um, conferences and meetups as well. Um, hopefully we're, we're safe to do that by 2022 um, because I think that, you know, if nothing else, we just have all missed each other so much and this has really emphasized how what we get out of going to conference isn't just learning. I mean, we're all really enjoying learning online, but a huge chunk of it is getting to hug our friends and getting to see each other and just be around people with shared interests is is so significant for our industry, I think. So I think that things will be incredibly online based 2021. And then there will be a probably a huge return of, of in person teaching and conference in 2022. I didn't even think about that. Yeah. Yeah. Online. We're, we're all just having to basically relearn the things that we're already doing and figure out how to do them through the internet. Uh, this next question, this is primarily going to be you and maybe I'll touch on it a little bit at the end, but it's really not an issue that I've ever really even had to really think about just who I am and, and my life experience. But I, I, I've, I've heard you speak on this before and, and you're really brilliant with it. So this next one is dealing with uh, or avoiding predatory uh, cis male clients, especially with genital piercing. So what, 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 what's your thought on this? And I know that you have really a methodology to it, but also kind of like a, a theory and a philosophy that goes with it. Well, when I first saw this question as a proposed topic, I was really excited because this is something that I've taught a class on. And then immediately I was like, well, how am I supposed to answer this? I teach a class on this. You know, it's something I will talk about at length. So it's difficult to just kind of like summarize and give like a five minute answer to a subject that is so sprawling um, and I don't want anybody listening to feel like I'm overlooking things and um, you know like not talking about important things so just to try and strip it down to like some of the the key most practical bits of advice I could give 
is that, um, well, firstly, we just need to be aware of why it's so common. Like, why is it something that is definitely pretty much going to happen um, if you're offering genital piercing? Um, and it's got nothing to do with the industry itself. It has nothing to do with people that want to get piercings, people that want to get genital piercings. They are not naturally in any way more predisposed to predatory behavior. Piercers aren't naturally any more predisposed to being victims of predatory behavior. It has nothing to do with any of that. It's because people that behave in that way, um, predators, sexual predators, don't just kind of get up one morning and go outside and attack somebody, um, except in, in really rare cases. They will start to push the boundaries of what's acceptable further and further and further and becoming more extreme in their behavior. And so they will often start by doing things that are inappropriate, but just on the, the cusp of what's legal or illegal. And that can start with things like indecent, indecent exposure. So people that offer genital piercings, just like uh, massage therapists and um, waxers, body waxers offering um, intimate services, they're gonna find that this happens a lot for them as well, because what's happening is if you're a predator, you've found a way to put yourself alone in a room with somebody who's often statistically a younger female uh, and expose yourself and maybe say things that are inappropriate or do things that are inappropriate and try and push that scenario, which is a horrible thing to do. And it's a horrible thing to experience if you're that person. I've definitely been that person, but that's why it happens. It's because they see it as, as a way to kind of you know, test themselves and push themselves with what it is they're exploring, which is, of course, completely wrong um, and, uh, and very, very harmful and often dangerous as well. So now that we know that that behavior is almost certainly going to happen, the best thing that we can do is try and prevent it from getting to that point. So there are a few things that you can do with that. Uh, and I think the key thing is bringing it out into the open as much as possible. And that means having visible anti-harassment policies um, that can be viewed in store or on your website um, in the, the the way of a customer code of conduct customer code of conduct for example um, people that are going to come into your studio and behave that way behave inappropriately will probably scout the place out a little bit first and um, just making it clear that this is behavior that you're aware of and that you're looking out for may actually deter them from, from selecting your studio. Um, you can also implement uh, procedures like having a, a mandatory consultation period or a mandatory waiting period that basically means that it's impossible for a new customer to just walk in off the street and straight away be alone in a room with you having a piercing done, which is the, the biggest risk um, of potential predatory behavior occurring because in those situations there's just no accountability you know if they can just literally walk in and be alone with you and it's that easy you can also put systems in place that require them to have an id card on file um, those kind of things will again act as a significant deterrent because someone's a lot less likely to behave inappropriately if you have their real name and address um, so those are some of the things that you can do to kind of make the studio in general a little bit less of an easy target. Uh, other things I would say that are really important are things like making sure every member of staff knows what your harassment policy is and that you can communicate with them clearly because if something does happen, your first thoughts don't often go to 
right, well, what should I do now? You can just find yourself in a panic, not knowing what to do. So having something in place on paper, just the same as you would with something like a needle stick injury and having every member of staff know what to do in that situation is really, really important. And Ryan brings up an interesting point in saying that, you know, this isn't something that I've had to deal with because, you know, like being male and, you know, being in a position of authority in the studio and that kind of thing, it's not something that, that you really have to, to worry about. But male piercers and, and more mature piercers experience this stuff all the time as well. And I think that it should be addressed equally across the board, re- regardless of your age or gender, because just being more mature or um, being a cis male doesn't mean that you should be allowed to be sexually harassed at work either, you know? So I think having a uniform response by every member of staff in those situations and having a zero tolerance policy towards it in force ahead of time is, is really important. Yeah. I, I've, I've had those clients. Like I, I know that I can recall clients who have, uh, tried to abuse me in one way or another people who have come in for um, completely unnecessary genital checkups genital evaluations things like that where they really just wanted to be naked and looked at and yeah. that that's trying to like exert exactly. their power over you that's exactly how it starts you yeah know, like that's what i mean when i say that they'll they'll push the boundaries in ways that are okay but not okay it's sure really deliberate sure me in, in those situations, I just fall back on my my comfort and experience and I'll say, well, that, that's not unnecessary. I don't see anything wrong here. I would ask you to not come in for an unnecessary checkup for this in the future. And, you know, you, you can, uh, you know, if you had a problem, this and that. I, I try to make it clear that, like, what they're doing is not acceptable. Um there, there have been those other those other scenarios where it's like maybe someone will become aroused and sometimes that's just a, a physical response, right. but sometimes it's also uh, an expression of their their dominance and their, their predatory behavior. Mm-hmm. Uh, so but I don't want to make it seem like um, like I'm trying to be dismissive of the problem. I'm, I'm completely aware of the problem, but I just think that I through my bias and through my life experience, uh, those haven't become significant risks to me, but I know plenty of other people where it has. So I I think it's really important to um, be aware of it whenever I have new staff that come on, regardless of gender, regardless of age, regardless of physical appearance, they're they're trained in how to deal with those scenarios. These are the things you'd want to watch out for, whether it's even just getting a phone call or having someone come into the studio or how to answer your emails. Yeah. Uh, these are the things you want to be aware of. If something were to happen in the studio, these are the procedures to do like immediately and et cetera, et cetera. And I, I also need to like really make it clear to people, especially younger people, like younger career wise, not necessarily age wise, that um, you will never be penalized for following these procedures like don't ever feel like you're backed into a corner because it's either i'm nice to the client or they won't come back to the shop Mm -hmm. like they have to understand that it's like that that's not what it's about it's about your safety it's not like because they're doing something inappropriate like it is not it is not it it doesn't fall under your professional responsibility to allow someone to be predatory or to be unprofessional you are there as a professional and these are the things that that are included in professionalism on both sides i think as well like there is such a spectrum of inappropriate behavior at work and i think that there is a big difference between predatory behavior and like 
tone-deaf comments. Sure. You know, and I think that it's important to remember as well, so that you don't psych yourself out too much, that there can be situations where you can be dealing with a client doing a genital or any piercing, and maybe they make a comment about your appearance. Maybe they have a crush on you or something like that, and they say something. That's inappropriate. It's inappropriate for them to do that and sexualize you in your workplace. But it doesn't necessarily mean that you have to lose them as a customer. That's an opportunity for you to say, look, you know, you can't make comments like that to me when I'm working. It's not professional. I'm here to do my job. And if they're any kind of a, a reasonable person or grown up, they will completely take that and say, I'm really sorry. I wasn't thinking. People often put their foot in their mouths and say things that they shouldn't. So it's important, I think, to be vocal about your feelings, vocal about what is and isn't appropriate from the get-go. Uh, and a lot of the time, I think that if it's just a, a simple misunderstanding, people are nervous. Sometimes they say the wrong thing, sometimes they do the wrong thing. But if you're being assertive and confident, it's going to become clear really quickly who is genuinely exuding predatory behavior and it isn't listening to those cues from you. Um, I think that a big turning point for me was I, I used to do well, I still do uh, a lot of intimate piercing. And uh, when I first started getting a high volume of male customers in particular, um, you know, they would be most common kind of aged between 50 and 60. Um, so, you know, there was kind of that dynamic of them being significantly older than me and that kind of thing in the workplace. And I had somebody behave in a way that was really inappropriate. It really freaked me out. And I spoke to the manager about it straight away who at the time was a lady called Lorraine, who's really, really fantastic and definitely one of my favorite people. And I was like, well, what are we gonna do to tell them not to come back? Like we have to, like, what am I gonna make up to tell them so they don't come back? And she was like, we're not gonna make up anything. We're gonna tell them exactly what they did and that it was inappropriate and that's why they're not allowed back. And at, like at that point, it did just kind of click in my head that I'd been doing that thing where you look at the situation as like, I'm the problem, you know, it's it's my fault they can't come back even though they behaved completely inappropriately. Um, and it's like straight away you're starting to think of, well, how, how can I diffuse the situation by making up some crap so they don't come back here anymore? And instead, the right thing to do is to completely confront what it was that happened and say, no, you did this, it was inappropriate, now you may not come back here again. If you come back here again, we're going to alert the authorities that you're back here again. So that kind of response where you immediately call out predatory behavior and call it what it is and document it is really, really important in stamping it out because if you don't, if you just make up an excuse to not see a customer again, they're gonna go and see one of your colleagues in a nearby studio. They're gonna keep doing that everywhere they go and affecting a lot more people negatively as well. So it is important for your safety and for the safety of your co-workers in, in your studio and the surrounding area to document and, and deal with that situation as it happens. So to, to draw a distinction, um, what what would be your response? Be, okay, so I also do a fair amount of intimate piercing, and let's just say as an example, someone comes in for Prince Albert piercing or any, any penile piercing, uh, and they become physically aroused, which is incredibly common. Yes. Um, now, how, how do you handle a situation like that and where do you see the line as just a, a physical response that someone might have no control over and the line between that and inappropriate behavior? Well, I think that it's difficult to, to really put it into words where that line is. It's a feeling that you get from everything about the interaction, the body language, 
what it is that you're talking about, what it is that's happening. Is the customer trying to touch you? Are they trying to touch themselves? Are they staring at you? I had a customer once who just, this and a person who did go on to behave really inappropriately, stared at me the entire time, like directly at my face, not what I was doing, not at his own anatomy, which you know is what people tend to be more interested in when they're getting a piercing, but directly at me. It seemed to be wholly irrelevant that they were getting their genitals pierced, and it you know it was notably weird. Uh, people making comments about your personal life, uh, making comments about things outside of work. You know, like if you have a pet or. Uh, maybe you were doing something that weekend. They can make comments that show that they've been following your social media. And again, on their own, these things could be nothing. They could just be friendly conversation. And that's why I'm saying, if you do notice one or two things, it could honestly just be innocent chat. And you might just need to address that, you know, it's a little bit inappropriate. I would rather not talk about my personal life while we're doing this and I'm working in a professional capacity. But it's repeated. They're they're going to keep pushing and the more uncomfortable you get the more they're going to keep pushing so i've certainly had many customers um, get erections during the course of a piercing um, but it's usually kind of halfway through the piercing um, just as a, as a response of nerves and just there being stimulation in the area and that kind of thing and you can usually tell by everything to do with their body language that you know when you're finished with the piercing, for example, are they kind of motioning, you know, is it okay to get dressed? And mm -hmm. obviously you you tell them, you know, this is what you can do, put this on, put that on. Yeah. Or are they, you know, I've also had customers who have just lay there for uncomfortably long, not getting dressed where you have to say, you know, I need you to put your clothes back on. Or they on start having them. that long conversation with you, with, yeah. their, with their junk and out. Again, that's why it's so important to steer the, the whole interaction from beginning to end, you need to tell them what you need from them, where you need them to go, what you need them to do. Because, you know, if you're leaving all of that stuff up to them, they may get it wrong. So if you're doing your job properly and steering them through the interaction, um, then you're going to find that there'll be a lot more of those little kind of clunky miscues where things seem a little bit weird. And if you're doing your job properly and someone is still sticking out like a sore thumb to you as being someone that's behaving inappropriately, it does become a lot more obvious because you've eliminated a lot of the ways in which they could have misinterpreted the situation. Um, so, and again, in my experience, and this is just me, not all of the customers that have behaved inappropriately have like gotten erections, mm -hmm. you know, during the piercing and that kind oh, of thing. Oh, I don't want to make it seem like it's yeah, an exclusive like, issue. It's not even always about that either. Um, so I, I think that you can certainly tell, um, like as you've mentioned, when somebody is basically trying to get you to touch them more than you need to. Or to get um, you to say things that do not fall within the scope of a professional conversation. Yes, or maybe share things about their intimate practices with you. Mm -hmm. And again, Or to ask you about things that are not professional details like, oh, do you have this piercing? How would you suggest I use this piercing? Mm -hmm. Do you think that people find this piercing pleasurable? Do you find this piercing pleasurable? Yes. And again, it's difficult because there is a realm in genital piercing where you have to have some conversations mm -hmm. about the practicality um, of the impact of certain jewelry sizes and shapes, you know, and it's not at all unreasonable for a customer to say, you know, I'm finding this is a bit tight in this situation. or I'm finding that it's, you know, causing problems with this. Sure. And maybe they might use the wrong words or maybe they might describe things poorly. And you just need to, again, take control of the conversation and say, okay, well, here's what we can do. Mm -hmm. We could try this. Um, you know, and 
just steer things in that direction. Whereas if they're if they're just going on and on, in spite of you trying to steer the conversation away from those details that you actually have to stop and say, look, it's really not appropriate for you to be sharing that level of detail with me. Mm-hmm. That's your personal experience. And I'm just here to do my job, basically. Yeah. Then again, it's just another example of how they're not listening to direction and they're just pushing their own needs in the conversation. So I think that that's another reason why with genital piercing in particular, it's so, I mean, it's as much to do with technical piercing skill as any other piercing, but you're crossing such a bigger boundary in terms of your interpersonal communication skills. You really need to have excellent communication skills and such nuance for being able to detect those little changes in conversation. And if you don't feel that you're at that level, I would avoid doing genital piercings altogether because you can end up being in a situation where you're being led deeper into an interaction with a customer whose motives are incredibly predatory and harmful to you um, before you even realize it. And then you're in a situation where you're not sure what the best thing to do is. And that's why I think it's so important to, to for your own safety not offer genital piercings unless you're 100% confident that you're able to steer those situations as safely as you can uh, and that you're in a studio that has an on-paper reaction plan. Um, are you giving yellow or red cards to customers for their behavior? Are you banning them altogether? Are you filing a police report if an incident actually takes place? Is that a requirement or is that just at the you know, the behest of the, the employee if they wish to make one? You know, like these are things that you should discuss ahead of time. Uh, and the single most important thing, you know, in the in the, you know, horrible event that something does take place, the most important thing you can do is document on paper every single thing that happened in the interaction, because you will forget almost instantly. It's it's an incredibly human trait to try and rationalize crazy behavior if you're not a crazy person. So you forgive a lot and you misremember a lot and you you blame yourself for a lot of things too. And that's why it's so important to write everything down. And also just in this in this age where digital is more convenient for some people, um, it's perfectly fine to record yourself uh, at, on your phone and then write it down a few minutes later. Uh, because if it's something where it's like, well, I don't have time to write this down right now, I'll do it in a half an hour or an hour, you can lose detail even within that time. Yeah. So as soon as you've maintained, uh, as soon as you've created a safe environment for yourself or a coworker or whoever, once that client has been dealt with or removed from the studio or the authorities have been called or a staff member has been called, um, you can record that and then you can write it down later for documentation. And, you know, it's it's also so important, as I was saying at the beginning of this question, to to make sure that every member of staff is on the same plane, because imagine how you would feel if you had an interaction that you felt was predatory, but, you know, you didn't personally feel in danger, so you just let it go. And then, you know, a week later, two weeks later, one of your coworkers is in that situation and it affects them. Um, you would know, like, I could have, you know, documented that. I could have said that something had happened and I could have said, you know, we have to prevent this customer from using the studio anymore. Um, So not doing that just because you personally don't feel affected by it can also be harmful to your coworkers too. Um, So I think just honestly try and treat it like any other hazard in the studio because it is almost inevitable that you'll have to deal with it at some point, which is really unfortunate. Um, but have a, an action plan down on paper um, as to what 
actions that you would take in certain situations. Make sure that everyone is aware of, of what those plans are, where you can find them, where you can review them at any time. Um, to make sure that if you are in a situation that you feel threatened, you're not scrambling to try and think of what you should do. It's it's already been predetermined um, so that all you have to do is kind of follow the, the guidelines in place for that. Um, but, you know, by being outwardly anti-predatory from the beginning, by having, you know, a code of conduct on your website, by having booking, by having consultations, by documenting any strange inquiries, by doing all of those things, you really will prevent so many predators from coming into your premises because they will go for the easiest option for themselves. So you just need to make it a little bit harder um, and that's going to really, really help cut down your risk. Uh, and, and also just to kind of cap off the subject, it's not about your gender. Uh, I'm not saying that it just needs to be people who look like they might be uh, an, an easy target. Um, every studio, every staff member should have that, that same training. Uh, and you should try to remove your own personal bias from it. Just because you might be a big, tough-looking individual, um, you, you still want to make sure that you create a safe, and, uh, a safe workspace for every member of your staff, uh, both present and future. Uh, next subject. So the next subject is stretching. Stretching. Um, very vague subject, but uh, we, we already covered ear stretching a little bit in part one. So let, let's cover, uh, you know, body piercing stretching. Um, what, what, what's probably your most common non-earlobe stretching that you do? Hmm. Well, for uh, me, it's definitely PAs. Yeah, I was going to say Prince Albert yeah. stretching is, I would say, the next most common. Um, do you do you get clients who who say like when they first get it, I'll, I'll typically steer them towards eight gauge as an initial size, mm -hmm. and they'll be like, Yeah, yeah, that'll be fine. I don't, I don't, I, I couldn't see myself going bigger than that. And then like the majority of those clients are the ones like a year later, you're putting in some like monster piece of jewelry. So. Yeah, I think like once they have the piercing done the kind of little bit of fear goes away from it as well, you know, because when you first start looking at those really, really big, chunky pieces of jewelry, it can seem a little bit intimidating and something like an eight gauge ring might look pretty imposing itself. And then once you're used to the weight of it and mm -hmm. the feel of it and, you know, you've long forgotten about the initial pinch of having it done and that kind of thing, it doesn't seem anywhere near scary going yeah. up to a bigger size. And it stretches so naturally as well over time, especially, you know, like the higher up you go. So when it comes to clients with larger jewelry, um, for, for myself, I always try to drive people back into the studio by saying like, we'll handle all your stretching, we'll handle all your jewelry insertions, jewelry changes, all that stuff. Are you more of like a let us do that for you or are you more of a you know do this at home and I'll help facilitate that through jewelry sales or maybe even taper sales well I usually recommend that people come back to the studio for stretching just because it, it's a, a difficult item to acquire at least in the area that I'm in you know it's it's not something that you can just pick up anywhere. There's not like a big selection of genital stretching jewelry that you can buy. And most people would rather not purchase it online. And obviously then I can't touch the jewelry or insert the jewelry. And what I'll usually say is, you know, like if someone's ordering a ring from me, maybe it'll take six to eight weeks to arrive. Um, we can just do that at each stretch, you know, or do a couple of sizes. So that way when they come in to 
have the piercing stretched um, with the jewelry that we have currently, um, if they know that they want to go to the next size, they can just leave a deposit, order the next size, and then when they're ready for the next stretch, the jewelry will arrive, they'll come in, and we'll just kind of keep it ticking over like that. So mm -hmm. I try not to have long periods of time where they don't get stretched, then they decide they want to get stretched, then they have to order, then they have to wait. So I'll, we'll try and establish if that's something they'd like to keep rolling. Obviously, there's nothing wrong with them taking time out. It just means, you know, it is going to be a little bit slower for them. Um, but for, for genital piercing stuff, I tend to not push home stretching too much. Um, other parts of the body, um, like labrette stretching and stuff like that, I wouldn't discourage somebody from doing at home personally just because the jewelry is so heavily customized in terms of the curvature and the length and, and all of that stuff. There are companies that are really fantastic in the UK um, hand making um, like librette stretching sets that you can purchase. It might be completely different um, as a market thing for you. Like I never, yeah. I, I have I have zero clients that I can think of yeah. that have like, you know, large but lip jewelry. With, with things like that, you can order um, those sets in increments of 0.3 to 0.5 millimeters sure. they can be so small that the risk of a, of a customer damaging or hurting themselves in any way is is really eliminated by that so um with those kinds of things i would direct them to a, a merchant you know that i've used and trust and recommend for those specific needs because just as a retailer for me i'm never gonna able to afford to carry that range of products and it's been um, like a really weird generational thing for me yeah. like how much dick jewelry i stock like yeah. you know it's like i have i have everything from eight gauge to i think two gauge in, in stock for like various pa jewelry uh in different diameters and different ball size ends and all that stuff i only really carry like usually like one of each size um, but like I, I never would have thought that I would have been allocating budget to something like that years ago But now it's just like well, yeah, I obviously need to, to restock on two gauge three-quarter inch circular barbells Do you not find though that with genital piercing and in, in particular there is a particular customer that I have in my head um, Who I've seen over and over again, not just one customer but a demographic of customers that get PA piercings done who just enjoy how easy it is to just get the piercing done and then put an order in with me, I'll let them know, six to eight weeks they'll come back and get stretched and it just makes it so easy for them. They don't have to do anything, they mm -hmm. don't have to buy anything, they don't have to know any numbers or remember anything. Like all they have to do is turn up, you know, every one to two months and get fitted with their new jewelry. So mm -hmm. I, I think that with some body piercings that are a lot more cosmetic and visible all the time, there's that huge need, like I want to change it myself, I want to wear different things and change my own jewelry and it's a lot more trying to manage that with your customer for their own safety. Whereas like with some intimate piercings in particular, um, people are just a bit more happy to just have that stress taken out of their hands and, and have somebody else take care of it for them, which I think is a nice part of the service. It's. It's an investment, not just with money, but it's almost like an intimacy investment. Yeah. Like uh, that's su that's such a, a functional area for some people, um, and it's just such a intimately personal area, you know, for obvious reasons. That a lot of times they they don't want to leave that stuff to themselves. They don't want to go online and maybe buy the wrong thing or maybe install it incorrectly or something like that. So I, I think some of my favorite clients are my PA clients, and like you know. If I think of clients who have spent, you know, high high amounts on 
nostril jewelry or ear piercings. I can remember some of their names, you know, if they're repeat, if they've been in more than once, like maybe I'll remember their name or something. But a lot of my like genital project clients, um, it's just like they're, they're like a buddy coming to visit where it's like, oh, you know, hey, how's it going? You know, like you ready for that size today? And like, even just mentally without even pulling any, pulling anything up. I know what size they need. I know how long it's been. I know what style, if they want it anodized, I know what color they like, uh, all that stuff. So I, I really enjoy those those clients a lot for stretching. Mm-hmm. When it comes to like the actual uh, physical act of stretching, do you have a preference for like a concave taper versus a pin taper versus a threaded taper? Not really. Is it is it like it's, based on what piercing it is? or Yeah, it's just really dependent on what it is that I'm doing. Over time, I just, I, I went through so many different generations of qualities of, of tapers, um, ones that had different graduations and ones that had different styles of concaves and backings and all that stuff where now it's just like, if I can put a threaded taper on anything, I'm going to use that threaded taper. Uh, and that's all I want to use because like I found it so frustrating when you would do a difficult stretch, not to the point where you were traumatizing someone, causing a tear, causing bleeding or anything like that, but one of those ones where it was a little bit of an effort to get that taper through um, you know, safely for the client. And then you have that little tiny bit of a wiggle because of the edge of the jewelry. You know, Maybe it's a nicely polished internally threaded piece, but it doesn't have much of a rounded edge on it and it just it's difficult to line up and you get that misalignment where you lose contact and you have to start out i hate that i hate that moment like it's yeah. it's less and less now but for the first several years of my career just based on like the potpourri of quality that i could afford yeah. uh it was just so frustrating doing that i think as well though like with with earlobe piercings i think we talked about this in the the last episode as well that once you're kind of above a certain size, PAs do stretch so naturally on their own with weight. So I would always just have a little look and see if it looks like there's a little bit of movement or gap. Sometimes you get like that really helpful natural gap around the edge of the jewelry. Clients seem to know too. Yeah, it's it's almost like that's part of the reason why they want to have it stretched too. So Mm -hmm. they get that kind of snugness back. You know, Mm -hmm. maybe they're getting some leakage that they don't want and that kind of thing. That's not a good word in in, in any scenario. (laughs) Um, so what, what about, what, what piercings do you find consistently challenging? I find that stretching nipple piercings can be consistently. I have a customer with, um, uh, like, uh, nipple crosses on both nipples that yeah. are stretched and yeah. it's my favorite piercing thing in the whole world. Well, I'd imagine that looks really cool. For, so cool. for me, when it comes to nipple piercings, I find that almost regardless of what size they're at and how long they've had it it's always going to be a pretty uncomfortable stretch for them. And it's always going to be a little bit challenging for, for insertion too. Uh-huh. Do you have anything that you use to negate that? Like what's, what's your, if you're going into something that you expect to be a little bit more of a difficult stretch, like mm-hmm. do you do anything special to prepare the client's anatomy? Do you use a special type of lubricant or a special length of taper to give you a certain kind of graduation? Anything in particular? No, I, I very much agree with you. I, I think that obviously you're like, I'll always make sure that I'm using water-based lubricant, using a taper, and, and really leaving it a good length of time. For example, like a lobe or a PA or something like that, you might be able to stretch every one to two months. You know, if everything's looking healthy with nipples, I would say, you know, you want to be giving it at least three or four months in between a, a minimum just to allow um, yourself to recover not really just physically, but like emotionally as much as you can. <laughs> Honestly, it's not, people don't get these things because they're comfortable. It's It yeah. really is like an aesthetic choice. 
Um, it comes with discomfort. That'll pass, and you know, you're just left with something that I think looks really, really cool. Um, and I, I, I think that that's why I do enjoy that element of the work that I do because so much of my day now is geared towards pretty and a certain version of pretty and making things as fast and as painless, which I still do as, as possible and really like cleaning up that whole side of things that there is just like a big, big thing that I love about doing something that is like chunky and that's like steel or titanium and it's just an aesthetic size-based weighted kind of look mm-hmm. it's really classic that's not necessarily fashionable but it's not intended to be and i really like the defiance of that and and how it's what that person really wants and you can tell nobody told them to get it they didn't see it somewhere else and think oh that looks nice they there's something inside them that's like i want that and i love that you know what does not exist okay okay so <sighs> Nobody gets their genitals curated, like it's well. Okay, maybe maybe they ask maybe they ask for for you know professional opinion, what would work or not work or whatever. But yeah. uh, when people come in and like like all the clients that I that I have worked on where they have let's say more than a half a dozen things total, um, like they know what they want. Like they like the only thing that I would maybe be telling them is like well maybe this size or that size, or maybe this amount of spacing or that amount of spacing, you know, or how many you're allowed to do in one sitting. Um, But a lot of times it's not, somebody doesn't just sit down as a blank canvas and be like, stare at my genitalia and just paint a canvas, you know? Mm. Um, So yeah, I I really do like the personal connection for people with, uh, not to go off on like a genital tangent, but Mm. you know, but I, I think that a lot of those clients, stretching is going to be a crucial component of that. Like a lot of those clients that have a multitude of, of genital piercings, you're also going to be seeing them a lot in the future for increasing sizes and, you know, chunky jewelry. Yeah. Yeah. Um, other other stretching related things, septum stretching is pretty common. More, more yeah. Very, very common in the piercing community at least. I can't even remember the last um, time I stretched someone's septum. Um, but like with, with all stretching, I think that it's important to just be aware that it is a body mod that's often irreversible mm-hmm. um, to an extent. I stretched my septum to 10 millimeters when I was... Which is double zero. Yes. Um, when I was like 17 to 18 kind of thing. And at that time, there was no nice jewelry. Like I'm sure in the world there was nice jewelry, but in Glasgow, in Scotland, Potentially in the UK, there was nowhere stocking high quality body jewelry. So there was no kind of gold jewelry you could buy. There were no like pretty clickers. I'd even heard of a clicker. You could get a captive bead ring or a horseshoe. You couldn't get anodized jewelry or, or anything like that either. Um, and honestly, if all of that stuff had been available, I wouldn't have stretched it because, you know, like I just kind of stretched it as, you know, something to do and kind of make it just feel. I guess customized and personal to me it was just something I started doing um, and now you know even if I go months and months and months without wearing any jewelry at all it's just always going to be at about seven millimeters the kind of empty space that's there which means if I want to wear any kind of nice jewelry I have to wear an eyelet um, I've tried the adapters but I just they don't really work for me because it's so naturally loose as I'm talking throughout the day they just end up popping out and so I, you know those little um, 
medical grade silicone eyelets work great for me but it just means you know I have to wear that if I want to wear anything nice and even then I have to wear like a six mil or quarter inch clicker and so that's been really limiting so I would just say like if you're in a position at the moment where you you are stretching stuff just be aware that you know it is destructive to the tissue in a lot of different ways and that can be a really cool thing but it is often going to be permanent and kind of limiting as to what you can maybe do there in the future um, but then again, I used to have stretch nostrils and I had them for years at four millimeters and then I took them out and after a couple of weeks, they were just gone. Um, so it's very inconsistent sometimes. So to kind of cap off the stretching topic, what are your thoughts on stretching cartilage it's versus soft tissue? Very sore. <laughs> it's, it's very sore. <laughs> to be fair, those septum stretching was awful. It was, well, do you know what it was like? It was like having a brick on my face all the time. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, it was like... What I, what I try to tell clients when it comes to cartilage stretching is it's not really cartilage stretching. It's more like cartilage erosion. Yeah. It's a very, very slow process. And if you try to overstretch it, meaning like you're trying to force through a taper, mm -hmm. uh, it is totally possible to traumatize or, or crack that cartilage. And um, there's really not much coming back from that as far as like comfort or functionality. Like once you, once you damage cartilage, it's, it's damaged. Cartilage doesn't regrow the same way that soft tissue does yeah I, I would just say like if you like the look respect the process like a lot of people will just look at pictures now and think that looks cool like they'll look at your conscious and think you know i want that and you had them punched and it was a whole stress for you with healing and everything i just think that it is really important that if you're having any kind of body mod done um and stretching is a type of modification you're modifying yourself um or you know if someone else is stretching you um i just think that it's important to be aware that there is a severity to that that can change how you look forever so i wouldn't say don't do it just respect the process and and make the decision to do that for yourself if that's what you want all right we've got one one more to go and this is a nice one to end with um what in your own opinion is the funnest piercing to perform and why Bridge piercing is my favorite. Really? Yes. Oh, that's out of nowhere. Why? Well, um, I think that bridge piercings look great. Um, I had a bridge piercing for a long time. Um, they're the rarest piercing for me. I get asked to do them less than anything else. I really enjoy them. Um, I really love the challenge of them. And I love that they really are the only piercing left, aside from like general stuff and, you know, like body mod stuff that people in the street look at and look at again. Um, I think that there's a quality to them that, I don't know, just because of the rarity is very striking. Um, I'm, they're not suitable for everybody. I don't think that everyone has sufficient tissue to have the piercing done or maybe the, the higher placement of the piercing isn't going to look terrific with their eye line and that kind of thing. Just the same as with any piercing, there can be limitations to that. But I think the thing is when, when I was like 17, I went to get my bridge pierced and I went into a studio and I asked, you know, like, can I get my bridge pierced? And it was a new studio that had just opened and I got pierced in everywhere in Glasgow. So a new studio opened, I thought I'll go there and get pierced. And I asked about getting my bridge pierced and a guy called over another guy who was an older gentleman with 
tribal tattooing all over his face and he was like this girl's wanting to get her bridge pierced and immediately the both of them were like were like why do you want to ruin your pretty girl face with a bridge piercing and i was so angry because you know like they had all of the facial tattooing and all of the stuff and i immediately felt like well but i, I just didn't expect to go into a tattoo and piercing studio and be lectured about ruining my girl face so i was fuming so i went to my and then i left and i went to my place that I would usually go to and they did it for me and we had a good laugh about what the other place had said and um you know I got it and I loved it and everything but you know like I think it always just stuck in my head as being a really cool statement piercing to get because it can't be more you know in the middle of your face than that and when I was younger septum and bridge piercing there was no legal requirement for you to be over 18 but a lot of studios wouldn't do them for you unless you were over 18 because they were such a big deal and like they just they seemed like such a big impact to your face aesthetically that piercers wouldn't do them for you unless you're over 18 instead of over 16, even though there was no legal requirement for that. Um, so I think that that's why it's just been like ingrained in my head as being like a, a rare and cool piercing. So that, that would be my favorite one to do. That's cool. That's a nice story. Um, I, I get asked pretty often, like it's it's that um, awkward chit chat filler that a lot of clients will ask, like, "Hey, what's your favorite piercing to do?" And like my most frequent response is like, "They're really all the same to me. They're really all the same to me." But when I when I really think about it from like something that satisfies me as a piercer, like I think I enjoy performing genital piercings more than any other type of piercing, um, and they're they're just rare enough where it's not like an everyday thing for me, but they're just frequent enough where like I consider myself to be moderately skilled with them. So like when clients come in for a genital piercing, they're putting an enormous amount of trust in your hands, among other things. And like being able to execute it well and for them to just be satisfied that you that you did a good job and that they're happy with it or especially the ones that come back for stretchings or maybe future piercings or or whatever like i just feel very personally satisfied by that um and also i just feel that like anyone who is into piercing should have genital piercings you know even if it's just one and you just like like it um like I, I think that you should experience it at least, you know, even if it's something that you don't love and you don't want to keep for the rest of your life and you don't want it to create like, you know, an identity behind it. I just love the concept of genital piercings as something that, you know, potentially functional, but also just deeply, deeply personal. And uh, I've always liked that. And I, I think that no matter what it is, I always feel that there's a level of challenge to it. Even if it's a piercing I've performed a ton of times and not in the way that I would say challenging like a septum is challenging because you have that little bit of palm sweat. Uh, I just mean that it's like everybody is so different um, and it's just like it's either perfect or not when it comes mm -hmm. to genital piercing. And I, I just, I, I really enjoy them. Yeah. Yeah. I think they make you feel like you're making a difference to somebody. Yeah. It's fun. Well, uh, so that's the end of uh, Ask Us Anything Part 2. So thank you, Lola. Is there anything that you want to tell the listeners? No. Is there anything, is there anything you want to tell me? I like you. Oh, that's very sweet. She's only saying that because she's my girlfriend and she has to. Um, so thank you for listening. Thank you to everyone who submitted a question. Uh, what's your social media? 
My social media is lola.slider on Instagram or Lola Slider on um, Facebook or anything else. And I work at Forest Piercing in Glasgow. Uh, follow me on social media as Ryan PBA on, on Instagram especially so I can tick up over that 10,000 line finally uh, follow Body Art Education by Ryan Willett on Facebook uh, keep listening to the back episodes of this podcast but I want to let everyone know that I'm going to take a little bit of a break from the show I'm not ending the show so don't worry about that I'm just going to take a little bit of a vacation because like just to be honest like I'm straight up out of ideas uh, for uh, for episodes, and I would really like to encourage people that if they want to um, start their own podcast, I think there are so many different communities that are probably being underserved um, by my podcast and and just the the industry conversations as a whole. That I would encourage all of you to start your own podcast and and start sharing uh, whatever conversations you find important to you. So. Thank you very much for listening to like a hundred and something episodes of, of my podcast. Um, I will be back with another episode. I don't know if that's going to be uh, two weeks from now, two months from now or whatever, uh, but I, I will come back with the, uh, the podcast. But for now, I'm going to take a little bit of a break and I feel like I've earned it. So thank you very much for listening. Oh, I was just going to add thank you to the people that sent us questions. Otherwise, it would have been a very boring and very quiet ask us anything. Yeah, it would have been really awkward. Yeah. It would have just been talking about, I don't know, mm-hmm. action movies? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Thanks for listening. Thank you.
give a damn So if you don't like it, go start your own band Many have told us that we can't go on That one day we'll run out of lyrics for songs But when the time comes to write album four We'll scrape up the barrel once more information about the show, visit piercingwizardpodcast.com or like Piercing Wizard Podcast on Facebook. For more info about your host, visit precisionbodyarts.com or search Ryan PBA on Facebook, Instagram, and Tumblr. If you enjoy the show, you can subscribe on iTunes, Apple Podcast, and Google Play. Music by Benny B. Blanco. Show copyright 2017, Precision Body Arts, LLC. All rights reserved.